So for those of you that uh, don't know me, my name is Robert Lerma. Um, and uh, no, there's not an AA meeting. <laughs> Although it could be. Um, and so we're going to continue in our uh, study of uh, Genesis, specifically looking at the uh, life of, uh, of Jacob. And um, so why don't you turn with me to Genesis chapter 33. And while you're doing that, you know, just kind of want to ask you guys a couple of questions. Um, we're all guys here, so there's a lot of responsibility that are on our shoulders. We have households, we have jobs, we have all these things that are going on. And so, you know, it, is life a struggle for you? It, I mean, it's really, really difficult, isn't it? Um, have you been thrown to the mat more than once? How many of you guys wrestled when you were in high school? Okay. So you probably heard the hand of that referee coming down right before he's ready to tap you out, right? And, uh, you know, you get up just in time as obviously you don't want to lose that, uh, that wrestling match. And sometimes you come away with bumps and bruises. Other times you come away with uh, a limp like Jacob because you've been wrestled to the ground. Life has gotten you... Uh, down, whether that was due to your own circumstances, whether it was due to uh, whatever. But uh, life has a way sometimes of uh, really wrestling us to the ground. You know, and God wrestles with men to bring them to the end of themselves until they're broken. And we can't do anything more except simply just call out to him, cling to him. And if you're struggling with God or if you're struggling with life, my encouragement right now is hang on. Because the more you hang on, the more you hear that small whisper of God saying, well done, keep hanging on, don't give up. And the reason for that is God has a blessing for all of us. And as we see in the life of Jacob, he had a blessing for Jacob. Jacob just kind of took it and did it his own way. So we'll never really know what Jacob's blessing really was. But in our lives, um, you know, God does have a blessing for us. So don't give up. Now, in Genesis 33, this is a very pivotal chapter um, in Jacob's life. You know, he's just finished wrestling with God, and he's been broken. He's limping because of a dislocated hip. He's tired. He's just, you know, at his wit's end, and the Lord has taken him to the mat. So, for those of you that wrestled, you can only imagine what it was like to sit there and struggle and wrestle against God himself. Now, if you recall, 20 years earlier, Jacob had left his home because his brother Esau had sworn to kill him for stealing his birthright and their father's blessing. Now, Rebekah, the boy's mother, had told Jacob in chapter 27, verse 45, when your brother is no longer angry with you and forgets what you did to him, I'll send word for you to come back from there. So, as you can imagine, Jacob is... Here we are 20 years later. He's still waiting for mom to call, and mom's not calling. And so because she never sent for him, he had every reason to believe that Jacob, I mean that Esau, um, was still angry with him, that the anger that he had for stealing his birthright was not going to be diminished. Now, needless to say, this caused Jacob to fear Esau in a big way, yet God had brought Jacob to the place where he recognized that he needed to make things right with his brother. 
Now, remember, Jacob is coming off this wrestling match with the Lord. He has just had a mountaintop experience. You guys had a mountaintop experience. You go to a retreat. You first get saved. You rededicate your life to the Lord. You've had a, a, a mountaintop experience, right? You guys have all had those. Remember those? That's where Jacob is. He's had a mountaintop experience. And I'm sure, you know, he wished he would not have to face off with Esau. Okay? Um, now, I don't know if you want to call him a chicken or anything, but, you know, he's had a brother that he thinks in his mind has been angry for him for 20 years, and you can only imagine what's going on in his mind. Now, in our walk with the Lord, the greatest mountaintop experiences don't remove us from the circumstances or the consequences in our lives, right? So the truth be told, the Christian life is filled with one conflict after another, trial after trial, struggle after struggle. And we need to recognize that great times of blessings are usually followed by great trials of faith. So we must be prepared for this tension and these challenges in our personal relationships. And to expect otherwise is to be like the ostrich that kind of buries his head in the sand, right? Um, But here's the good news. God doesn't promise to take us out of the fire, but he promises to get into the fire with us. You guys remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel? God's going to be right there with us. He is not going to leave us behind. Okay? You guys who are in the military, there's that saying, you know, no man left behind, right? God's not going to leave us behind. But Jacob is losing sight of that. Actually, Jacob has lost sight of that. So our story here begins in chapter 33, and I'll read the first couple of verses, and then we'll kind of uh, go through it. Verse 1, Now Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and there Esau was coming, and with him were 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants. And he put the maidservants and their children in front, Leah and her children behind, and Rachel and Joseph last. Then he crossed over before them and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him, fell on his neck, and he kissed him, and they wept. And he lifted his eyes and saw the women and children and said, Who are these with you? And so he said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. And then the maidservants came near and their children, and they bowed down. So as Genesis 32 closes, the wrestling match between Jacob and the angel of the Lord had just ended. Jacob right now is crossing Peniel as the sun began to rise. And we see that in uh, the previous chapter, verse 31. And at that very moment, it would seem that Jacob looked up and he saw Esau. And his 400 men appear on the the horizon marching toward him. So, guys, think about this. I mean, you, you guys have all had, we've all had people that were bullies and people in school, right? Can you imagine what Jacob saw when he kind of lifted up his eyes and he saw 400 men and he knew it was Esau? I mean, there must have been terror in his heart. His guilty conscience can only assume the worst, right? Obviously, it's been 20 years. He has no idea what's going to happen with Esau. And like Jacob, we often lift our eyes only high enough to see our problems, but usually it's not high enough to see God, who has the power really to solve every one of our problems. Jacob should have said, as Jehoshaphat did in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, Oh, our God, will you judge, not judge them? For we have no power against this great multitude that is coming against us nor do we know what to do. Here it is. But our eyes are upon you. 
I wish that Jacob would have said, Lord, you've crippled me, so I'm useless um, unless you intervene. You've promised to bless me, so I'm going to trust you. Because I think that sometimes, you know, as guys, you know, we don't really share a lot with our, our wives, right? And we internalize everything. And so <clears throat> it would have been nice for an, an account here for Jacob to actually have that conversation and to really say, hey, you know what? Here's where I'm struggling. Here's where I need your help. Here's where, you know, I am really afraid that Esau is going to tear me to pieces. But instead, the old Jacob takes over. In verses 1, two, one and 2, uh, as we read, you know, so he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants. And he put the maidservants and their children in front, Leah and her children behind, Rachel and Joseph last. So you hate to say it, but Joseph, J- uh, Jacob has a, a family value death chart in order of importance. He divides his children and his wives, and he puts the least favored in the front so that the more favored can possibly escape the massacre he still, he still fears. Now, Jacob continues to rely on his own wits to get him out of another tight situation, just like, like us. You know, many of us are very, very resourceful, and rather than going to the Lord, we try to figure it out ourselves. You know, some of you guys in here I know are really good with your hands. I'm not. I suck. But, you know, you're really good with your hands. And so you try to figure things out. You try to fix it. And this is what Jacob's trying to do. You know, Jacob's trying to fix every little situation. And I don't think the Lord really wants him to. Now, the fact that Jacob made preparation for his encounter with Esau wasn't necessarily a bad thing. It wasn't a wicked thing. In fact, the Lord will often lead us to do very practical things when we follow him. But we must take action only after we've prayed and we've sought the Lord in the particular situation. And this actually will demonstrate, you know, our trust in the Lord. Now, sadly, valuing some family members over other family members is not something that is new to the family of the patriarchs. You know, Jacob's tendency to favor Rachel and Joseph over his other wives and children was an ungodly pattern passed on by his own parents. It was a significant factor in the dysfunction of his own family. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm suffering from the, from the flu, so if I start coughing and wheezing, if I pass out, then you know what's happening. It's a joke, but I mean, it could be true. Just want to see if you guys are awake. But um, this kind of ranking, according to favoritism, no doubt fed the jealousy over Joseph that his brother's had that later becomes an important element in the story in Genesis um, when Joseph is sold into slavery. So fortunately, in chapter 33, verse 3, Jacob shows some indication of spiritual maturity. So Moses writes, Then he crossed over before them, and he bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Now, by going ahead of his family to meet Esau, Jacob shows the new Israel overcoming the fear that had formerly dominated the old Jacob. Now, it's a remarkable and important transition that's taking place here, guys. Jacob, remember, he's, he's self-serving, he's greedy, he's self-promoting, you know, he's self-protecting, he's the heel catcher, and he's being transformed by his relationship uh, with the Lord. He's beginning to take responsibility for the consequences of his own actions in a sinful past. Now, after all, 
it wasn't his wives or children who had cheated Esau out of his birthright, right? It was actually Esau that did this. It was Jacob. Uh, I'm sorry, it was Jacob. Now, if anyone was going to suffer for sin, Jacob didn't want it to be his family. So this was a real departure from the previous chapter, chapter where, you know, we saw that he was actually going to be at the end of the caravan. You guys remember that? Now here we see he's like, okay, you know what? I think I'm going to be the first one. I'm going to be the tip of the spear. And so you see a transformation with him. Now, this was very, a very dramatic moment. Esau probably rode his camel or his horse very rapidly or quickly and then leaped from his mount and ran towards his brother. Now, Jacob must have watched this approach with great anxiety, especially fixing his gaze upon the weapons that Esau carried. Now, as you guys remember, Esau was um, a man's man, right? So you can only imagine, you know, the kind of weaponry, muscles, the build that he had. And Jacob, you know, we, we get the picture that he probably wasn't like Esau. So he's fearful. But we find out that Esau actually came as a forgiving brother. So some would argue that Jacob is now, he's manipulating Esau and that he is disingenuous. But to me, it seems that Jacob is uh, a changed man. However, like all of us, there is still the residue of that old man. Under the pressure of the moment, Jacob can resort to his old scheming ways and then he takes matters into his own hands. However, the element of Jacob is mixed. That element of Jacob is mixed with some positive aspects of his new nature and his trust in the Lord. So really what we see here is a mixture of living in the flesh and then resorting back and saying, okay, I can do this. So there's a, an element of, of, of an arm of the flesh. And he, keep, he keeps going back and forth here. Now, what I especially like about verse 3 is that Jacob decides to face Esau like a man. Man to man, he's going to face him. And he earns, you know, some serious spiritual points here. But the looming question is, how is Esau going to respond? How is Esau going to see Jacob for the first time and deal with him? Now, with just a word, he could command his soldiers to kill Jacob on the spot. So what will he do? If he wants to get even, this is his big chance to do it, right? So whenever a problem comes up, guys, we always have two options. We can run from it or we can face it head on. Most of us are tempted to run, but we must recognize that the problem never goes away. We will always have to face up to what we've done or the consequences. So it's better to deal with the problems quickly because they typically are never as bad as you imagine. You guys ever had that kind of a situation? I know I have. Now, while we might be fearful, God wants you to step out in faith. And unfortunately, many times we meet these trials in life in the panic of the flesh. For instance, like if we have a financial difficulty, you know, and we don't know how we're going to pay the bills. It's necessary, you know, sometimes for us to just kind of sit back and say, okay, Lord, you know what? I have no money in the bank. I don't have this, or, and let me see what you're going to do, versus stressing over it. You know, my niece called me yesterday, and um, this situation kind of came up with her. She needed money for the rent, you know. And, um, you know, my wife and I usually will help out the family, but in this particular instance, we knew that my niece had uh, overspent during Christmas and wasn't really being a good steward of, of her money. And so, uh, you know, she calls her uncle and says, hey, you know, um, 
I need money for the rent. I'll pay you back. And it was the hardest thing for me to tell her no. Because that's the only way that she was going to learn. Now, Jacob's problems are really little different from the ones that you and I face today. And God doesn't want us to be fearful, but courageous and trusting men of faith. Isaiah 41.10 says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your, your God. I will strengthen you, and yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Joshua 1.9 says, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So in verses 4 through 6, Moses records a couple of amazing verses. It says, But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And he lifted his eyes and saw the women and children and said, Who are these with you? So Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. And then the maidservants came near and, they, and their children, and they bowed down. So can you imagine what Jacob must be thinking when he saw Esau running at him full speed, he must have thought, this is it. I'm a dead man. This, my, my number's up. But instead, even as God has been working in Jacob's life for the past 20 years, God has been working in Esau's life. Now, we don't have any indication that Esau was a godly man or that he ever gave his life to the Lord. But we know that, based on this account, that Esau had been dealt with with the Lord as well. And to Jacob's astonishment, Esau wasn't running to kill him. But he was, he was running towards him to reconcile with him. He was running towards him to bless him. Here's his brother he hasn't seen in 20 years. Now, think through this, this scenario with me, slowly and carefully, okay? In Esau's culture, men walked. They didn't run. Esau's breaking the cultural norms, and he's humbling himself. He has no idea what... Jacob's thinking, right? So he has no idea the fear that Jacob must be feeling. After running to his brother, Esau raised Jacob up from the bowing down position and he embraced him. So in other words, you know, here he is on all fours and Esau just goes over there and picks him up by the shoulders and picks him up and says, hey, my brother. Probably gave him one of those big old family bear hugs and he kissed him, right? Now, we got Lloyd in here, and sometimes he gives us those big old bear hugs, and, you know, kind of fearful, right, Lloyd? <laughs> he gets, <laughs> yeah, he is going to get me, isn't he? But they had been apart for 20 years. Now, Esau is a magnificent picture of God's graciousness and his forgiveness. His words of greeting to Jacob are remarkably similar to those of the father and the prodigal son at his return and you, if you compare this account here, Genesis 33.4, with Luke 15.20, you'll see a lot of similarities. Now, the account of Jacob and Esau and the story of the prodigal son are recorded for us. And they're recorded for us to show us what God's heart is like towards us who have sinned against him. We were all at one time like Jacob, scoundrels, self-centered, abusive, selfish people. We deserve death, right? We deserve what was coming to us. I mean, our own conscience, you know, found us guilty. And we had, I'm sure some of you, like I did, had a lot of anxiety in my heart 
didn't know the Lord, but knew enough that God was a righteous judge. Right? But as we made our way toward him in our sincere effort at reconciliation, he came running toward us, not to harm us, but to embrace us and to kiss us, to take us under his wing, right? This is the heart of God. This is the message of the cross. And this is the, the, at the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, some of you in here are, are musicians, right? And so many of you remember uh, Benny Hester. You guys remember Benny Hester? Okay. You know, he had a, a song that I remember when I was a young Christian uh, called When God Ran. You guys remember that? Listen to just a few words of his lyrics. For those of you that don't know Benny Hester. Almighty God, the great I am, immovable rock, omnipotent, powerful, awesome Lord, victorious warrior, commanding king of kings, mighty conqueror, and the only time, the only time I ever saw him run was when he ran to me, he took me in his arms, held my head to his chest, said, my son's come home again, lifted my face, wiped the tears from my eyes, and with forgiveness in his voice, he said, son, do you know I still love you? He caught me by surprise when God ran. That's the picture that's going on here, guys. We got two, we've got two things going on. We've got a message that God is saying to us, hey, you know what? I will run to you wherever you are, whatever you've seen yourself through, whatever mess you've gotten yourself in, I will run to you. And we also see that, that here Esau is doing the same thing. He's running to Jacob because he wants to see him. He wants to assure him that, hey, you know what? Things are okay. Now tonight, maybe you don't have a relationship with God. Maybe, you know, you're playing church, just going through the motions. Someone invited you here tonight. You need to know that you can never outrun God. You can never outrun his love and his grace and his mercy for you. No matter what you've done, he's willing to take you into his arms, love you with a perfect father's love. And he only asks that you humbly come to him on his terms through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, the other side of that is you could be a believer and you've walked away from the Lord tonight. After a season of sin, you've realized the insanity of of it all and you're ready to return. Now, please know this. God wants us to be restored to him far more than you'll ever want to be restored to him. His heart has been breaking ever since you left. When you do return in humble repentance, he will gratefully receive you with his unconditional love. Now let's look at verse 5. So Jacob, you know, in verse 5, Jacob gave God the glory for giving him his family. He confessed that his family was a gift from God. And this kind of echoes what James 1.17 says, that every good thing and give, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. This attitude is evidence of a basic change in Jacob's approach to life. He's becoming a more humble and a content man, not a perfect man, but he's, he's working towards that. Now, in verses 6 and 7, we see that reconciliation requires grace from everyone. And it says, then the maidservants came near, they and their children, and bowed down. And Leah also came near with her children, and they bowed down after Joseph and Rachel came near, and they bowed down. 
So you see that all three divisions of Jacob's caravan are bowing before Esau. This is the ultimate and humble submission. Jacob desperately wants to ensure that this reconciliation happens. He is doing everything in his power to make sure that it happens. And he's very, very, um, you, you would almost say that he's going overboard. Okay. And when we, attempt, when we attempt to make things right with someone that we've offended, we must be willing to do the same thing. We must be willing to go that extra mile and try to make things right with them. Okay. Now in verses eight and nine, Esau said to Jacob, what do you mean by all this company, which I met? And Jacob said, there are, these are to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother, <coughs> excuse me, uh, keep what you have for yourself. Now, in an attempt to reconcile with his brother, Jacob offers him a gift of 550 of his animals. And we see that in chapter 32, verses 14 and 15. Now, he, he wants to find favor. He wants to find grace with Esau. It's Jacob's lack of trust in the Lord that we see also in his insistence that Esau accept this elaborate gift. Now, in those days, it was a matter of custom that you didn't accept a gift from an enemy. So Jacob is doing everything he can to make sure that Esau was still not at odds with him. Guys, this guy doesn't get it. He's not seeing what's happening here. He's not seeing that, you know, Jacob... Or Esau could have called his army and wiped out his entire family. He he's not seeing that Jacob or Esau is running towards him. You know he, he's just not getting it. So he's really trusting that this gift that he wants to give his brother is going to appease that anger and appease uh, his uh, his brother. Now Esau he kind of surprises us with his response, doesn't he? I mean, he tells Jacob, you know, I've got plenty. Keep your stuff. I, I don't need it. I've got enough. And these words must have pierced Jacob's soul. Very perplexing to him. Jacob had spent his entire life scheming to get ahead. He's kicked, he's scratched, he's clawed his way to the top, only to find that he's alienated himself from everyone that he's loved and is, that he's ever loved. I mean, this must have been a very devastating and sobering reality for him. Esau is actually, ser actually serves as a convicting example to Jacob of a man that's content. Now, many of you are winning that uh, financial race, but are losing the race on life. The Bible says, you know, was it, losing my train of thought here. Um, it, it'll come to me. Sorry, guys. Um, but you're being consumed by the pressures and demands of success. Yet the Bible places a high premium on contentment. Listen to these words. 1 Timothy 6. <clears throat> now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So if we look at the 10th verse, this is the key 
to the peaceful meeting of these brothers. And Jacob responds to Esau by saying, and Jacob said, No, please, if I have now found favor in your sight, then receive my present from my hand, inasmuch as I have seen your face as though I had seen the face of God, and you were pleased with me. What's interesting here is that Jacob is actually uttering a truth that is well beyond his understanding. When he tells Esau, you know, I've seen your face as I had seen the face of God. He has no idea what he's, what he's saying. You know, Jacob, what Jacob meant is, is, is that in Esau's favorable reception, Jacob actually saw God's favor. But beyond that, Jacob's words point out the truth that when you're at odds with your brother, when you're at odds with someone, he represents God to you. You guys get that? So if you're right with him, it's a reminder that you're, if you're not right with him, then it's a reminder that you're not right with God. As John puts it this way in 1 John 4.20, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So what we see here is an amazing turn of events. Jacob refers back to his previous encounter with God, uh, and I'm referencing chapter uh, 32, verses 24 to 32, and he acknowledges Esau's response to him as the evidence of the grace of God. So there's no greater compliment, guys, than for a, for a non-believer to compliment us um, when they see that we have done well. You know, sometimes it's the other way around. You know, they, they catch us when we least expect it, and they see the worst of us, right? But no better compliment for a believer than for people to see us and the face of God in us. Ephesians 5.1 says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Now, in verse 11, Jacob continues and he says, Please take my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, graciously with me, and because I have enough. So he urged him, and he took it. Now, although Esau finally accepts Jacob's gift, here's the sad thing. Esau was not at all concerned about the things of God. Okay? Charles Spurgeon states and writes, It is an awful contentment when a man can be satisfied without God. And this is kind of what we see in Esau, because there's really no indication that he's a believer, right? I mean, there are people in this world that are non-believers that put us Christians sometimes to shame in the way that they treat you, the way that they talk with you. They're, you know, they're very polite. You know, um, they, they don't uh, retaliate. Um, they don't give you the bird when you cut them off on the freeway. You know what I mean? Although in L.A., I mean, that's, that's a rarity. But So Esau wasn't concerned at all about the things of God. Now, the word translated gift here is uh, barakah, is the word blessing. So Jacob had stolen Esau's blessing and his birthright back in chapter 27, 35, and he understood that for reconciliation to take place, he would need to make restitution for what he had stolen. Okay? Esau didn't want or he didn't need the animals. He didn't need anything from, uh, from his brother. He just wanted his brother. He wanted restoration. He wanted a relationship with his brother. But 
On the other hand, Jacob needed to feel like, you know, he could restore himself. And here's where Jacob kind of starts going back to the arm of the flesh. Rather than trusting the Lord, rather than seeing all that had transpired up until this point, he is still trying to figure this out himself. He's trying to make it happen. Finally, Jacob convinced Esau to accept the gift. Esau took it to allow his brother the opportunity to feel forgiven. When we receive a person back and they sense the need to restore our relationship, we can allow the person to perform restitution, but not as a precondition for coming back. Right? You guys get that? But as a result, of, but, but we want to be restored with them. So um, this is an important step in the process of reconciliation. If they want to make things right and you're okay with that, let them go through the motions. Let them go through that reconciliation process because it will help them heal, right? It'll help them heal. You may have forgiven them and God may have allowed you to just, you know, wipe that clean and you don't think about it, but they haven't gotten rid of it yet. Sadly, it would seem that Jacob missed two of the most, most important steps in, in this process. As far as we know, Jacob never does come right out and say, hey, uh, Esau, forgive me for what I did to you 20 years ago. Forgive me for stealing your birthright. He also never verbally confesses the wrongs that he had committed against Esau. Actually, I don't Yeah, so this, this is similar when a husband wrongs his wife. To make peace, how many of you guys in here are married? Okay. So you'll, you'll get this analogy, right? So this is similar when a husband wrongs his wife. And to make peace, you bring home some flowers, you go get a gift, you buy her candy, you go get her stuffed animal, you, you do whatever you do, right? That's a way of us kind of waving a white flag, right? Opening the door for peace talks at home. Opening the door for uh, peace talks at home, but... If a gift is all that's done, there hasn't been an adequate settlement. You have not sat down with your wife to make things right, right? So you as a husband need to specify how you wronged your wife, and you need to ask forgiveness. Both of you need to talk about what happened so that you understand each other. Otherwise, she's going to say to herself and probably some of her friends, right? You know, he thinks he can just run all over me and then buy me a gift to make everything right but he's not willing to deal with the real problem, right? <laughs> hmm. Take it you've had a few of these discussions. So in verses 12 through 17, after reconciling with Jacob, Esau said this. Let's look at verse 12. Let us take our journey, let us go, and I will go before you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are weak, and the flocks and the herds which are nursing are with me. And if the men should drive them hard one day, all the flock will die. Please let my Lord go on ahead before his servant. I will lead on slowly at a pace which the livestock that go before me and the children are able to endure until I come to my Lord in Seir. And Esau said, Now let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. 
And Jacob journeyed to Succoth, built himself a house, and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. So here we see that Jacob's flesh rears its ugly head in his response to Esau's offer to travel together. Again, you know, it, it's amazing to me. Um, now, it would not have been right for Jacob to go with Esau, okay? Let's just kind of, let's talk about that. It wouldn't have been right for him to go with Esau since God clearly had told Jacob to go to Canaan, okay? But um, it was the way he did it. So Jacob had every right to refuse, but it was just the way he, he went about doing it, okay? He wasn't, um, he was wrong in the way that he refused. You know, he makes up an excuse about his children and his flocks being too weak to travel at Esau's pace. Now, if you guys recall back in chapter 33, verse 14, I'm sorry, in, in 33, 14, you know, we know that he's telling a lie, right? Because he pushed them hard to escape from Laban. But now he uses their weakness as an excuse to avoid going with Esau. So he really had no intent. He really didn't want to go with Esau. And to make matters even worse, he deceives his brother again just for old time's sake, right? Rather than telling him, hey, Esau, you know what? God told me that I needed to go to Canaan. And you're going somewhere else, and I can't go with you. I would love to. You're my brother, but I just can't go there. It's no different, guys, that, you know, at work we all have friends or whatever, sometimes, you know, these friends are, are not believers, right? And they want us to go someplace. How do we handle those situations? Do we say, oh, you know, you know, my wife's waiting for me at home or whatever? Or do we take it as an opportunity to kind of say, hey, you know what? Um, as you know, I'm a Christian and I don't go to that place or I, I can't go to there or whatever it is. You know, sometimes that's more of a witness to them than anything else. And this is what Jacob did not do. Now, at almost every point in the story, Esau emerges as the more appealing, the more humane, and the more virtuous of the two brothers. You know, he's literally bending over backwards for Jacob. He hasn't seen him in 20 years, you know. And nevertheless, Jacob turns down Esau's gracious offers. Now, think about that. Even after forgiveness, after reconciliation, after the gift has been accepted, and the hugs and the tears... And after all the stories have been swapped, after all of that, and with the best of motives, Jacob still can't believe that everything is okay between the two of them. He just is like, no, 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 there's something going on here. Very, very skeptical. Have you guys ever met people like that? <laughs> He's pointed at himself, sorry. So Jacob, so Jacob immediately goes and builds a house for himself in Succoth. And what we're witnessing are steps backwards in his relationship, in his walk with the Lord. He's actually going backwards. He's not going forwards. He's going backwards. You know, he's going backwards, disobedient. You know, he's, he's displaying a real lack of trust, you know, in the Lord. He just doesn't, doesn't buy that the Lord is going to, uh, to help him out. He's going to be there for him. If you recall, God first appeared to Jacob at Bethel, and it was there... Jacob vowed to someday return to build an altar and give a tithe to God. And we see that in cha uh, chapter 28, verses 20 to 22. And in chapter 31, verse 3, the Lord instructed Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. 
So God is continually reinforcing to Jacob, hey, I'm going to be there for you. I'm going to be there with you. And in uh, 31.13, in repeating the command, the Lord said, I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar, where you made a vow to me. And it, it would seem to me that Jacob should have returned to that place of where his vision and that vow or that promise was that he had made to God, right? He should have returned there. But instead, he's kind of thumbing his nose at God and saying, hey, you know what? I got stuff going on. I'm afraid of Esau. I'm not sure that he's really being honest with me. Yeah, he accepted my gift, but you know what? I'm, I'm going to go over here. Now, the text doesn't shed any light on Jacob's reason for a move in the opposite direction, but here, here's a couple, okay? First, Jacob may not have been eager to face his father, Isaac, whom he had deceived and of whom he should have asked for forgiveness. So maybe Jacob just said, hey, you know what? I don't want to go where dad is. I need to ask for forgiveness. The conviction was too heavy. It's a possibility. Or, you know, Jacob may not have been excited about spending much time in an area too close to Esau, you know, who was obviously very well able to protect himself and his interests. So he's like, "Eh, you know what? Um, Better not stay too close to Esau. Or Jacob may, you know, Jacob made a vow to pay a tithe to God at Bethel in chapter 28, verse 22. So maybe he didn't want to do this. He didn't want to pay his tithes. You know, God had prospered him. God had given him, you know, flocks and everything else. So maybe Jacob was just being cheap and said, hey, you know what? I'm not going to pay my tithe to God. I don't want to go there. Now, most likely is that the pasture was far better in the Jordan Valley where Succoth was located. Remember, he's traveling in a caravan with, you know, herds and, and kids and everything else, right? So he's got to be concerned about how they're going to feed. So I think, you know, his cattle would have done better in these richer pastures um, of the Jordan Valley uh, than in the mountains. Now, more distressing than the direction of Jacob's travels was the duration of his stay at Succoth. Okay, now we know that Dinah, his daughter, could not have been older than about six or seven years old when Jacob left Padan Aram, for it seems she was born later in uh, later um, to Leah. And we see that in uh, chapter 30, verse 21. But by the time Jacob arrives in Shechem, she is of a marriageable age, which would have been around 12 or 13 years old. So, you know, some time had passed, um, actually several years passed between this meeting between Jacob and Esau and the events that will occur in chapter 34. And some of those years probably happened in Succoth. Now we see this also confirmed by the fact that Jacob built a house rather than pitching a tent. He was not a sojourner, not like his father Abraham, but he was a settler. And there is every indication that Jacob intended to settle down there. Now, regardless of the reasons behind Jacob's deception in verse 14, like his previous acts of compromise and deception, this brought about pain and loss in Jacob's life. In verses 18 to 20, it says, Then Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Padan Aram. And he pitched his tent before the city, and he bought the parcel of land where he had pitched his tent from the children of Hamar, Shechem's father for 100 pieces of money. And then he erected an altar there and called it 
El Elohi Israel. Now, here we see that Jacob built his first altar as Abraham has done in Shechem, okay? Where he had first entered Canaan. We see that back in Genesis 12, verses 6 and 7. This is the first time where an altar is actually given a name. El Elohi Israel means the mighty God is the God of Israel. And Jacob uses his new name, Israel, and acknowledges God as the God, his own God. Now, here's a side note, okay? Regarding Jacob using his his new name, here's an interesting point that after God changed Abraham's name from Abram, his new name is used consistently in the Bible. But after God gave Jacob his new name, Israel, the Holy Spirit saw fit to use the name Jacob 45 times, while the name Israel is used only 23 times, and it even has to be reaffirmed in chapter 35. Now, we probably shouldn't put too much or weigh too much into this or look, you know, look too deep into this, but it's interesting that 45 times the old nature, the old Jacob, his name is used 45 times. It's almost a two-to-one ratio. So it kind of tells you a little bit about, you know, how Jacob was consistently falling two steps back, one step forward, two steps back, one step forward, right? Kind of sounds like us sometimes. Sometimes we just kind of get in our own mind that we can, you know, walk this walk and we, we you know, are very good at, uh, at talking Christianese, but God knows our heart, right? And really we're taking a lot of steps back. In which case, God is saying, hey, you know what? Just take some steps forward. Just trust me. Now, after splitting off from Esau, Jacob crossed the Jordan River, moved his family into the land of Canaan, and he chose Shechem as his home. Now, although purchasing the land and erecting an altar were acts of faith, Jacob errs in settling into the land of Shechem. He had made a promise to worship the Lord at Bethel when he returned to the promised land. We see that in chapter 28, verses 20 to 22. But it takes him at least 10 years to fulfill this promise. So why did Jacob choose Shechem when he was told by God to settle in Bethel? Well, the text doesn't give us a motive for his disobedience, but it may hint at one. And if we look at verse 18, it says, Now Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem. So Jacob may have felt safe there. And he feared returning to the southern part of Canaan where Isaac was, his father. Or maybe because of continuing fears of Esau, who frequented that region. um, And maybe he just didn't want to be around Esau. Now, in spite of Esau's warm greeting, Jacob probably just still didn't trust him. I mean, this guy just has a real serious trust issue. Now, guys, there are those kind of people that we will encounter in our lives and in our walks with the Lord that are very treacherous people, kind of like Jacob. And they're going to think that you are treacherous just like them. You may not be, but because of their lack of trust and their lack of just being a good person, I mean, they, they are just going to be this way. But while Jacob was afraid of Esau, he wasn't afraid of staying in Succoth. He wasn't afraid of staying outside of the land or of buying property in Shechem, um, where his family would be morally polluted. 
He was afraid of all the wrong things. And God had promised to protect Jacob, but he felt safer in a place of partial obedience than to risk trusting the Lord by obeying completely. That's where he felt comfortable. Now, Jacob's gradual transition into Shechem is reminiscent of Lot's ever closer association with the city of Sodom. You guys remember the story of Lot? First, he pitched his tent facing Sodom. Then he moved into Sodom. And finally, sitting as, and then finally, he, he, uh, we find him sitting as an elder in Sodom's gates. So it was a gradual transition from kind of on the fringes to kind of now being in the city to actually being involved in the, the politics and the, um, and the governing body of the day. And as we will see in our study next week of Genesis 34, disastrous consequences await Jacob and his family in Succoth for his failure to obey the Lord. There's going to be consequences as a result of the moves that Jacob has made that are disobedient to, uh, to God. You know, Jacob was doing what we all do or have done in our walks, right? We've all kind of said, hey, you know what? Uh, we're going to make this attempt to follow the Lord. But, you know, sometimes we just kind of want to do things our own way. So by calling the altar God, the God of Israel, Jacob is acknowledging his gratitude to God for bringing him safely back to the land. But here's the big but. But. By not going all the way to Bethel, he was catering to his fleshly fear of Esau. Now, we already saw that God had promised that he was going to be with him. So he really had no reason to fear. But he's, he's not trusting the Lord. It's just like us. If we don't trust the Lord, you know, our, um, our minds are a, a playground for the enemy to kind of get in and just wreak havoc with us. And that's what we're seeing here with, uh, with Jacob. He was the new man, Israel, but he was still the old man, Jacob. He's still, rest, he's still wrestling. We see this picture. He, he wrestled with the angel of the Lord, right? But now Jacob's wrestling like we all do with, with the inner man. And he's allowing the inner man to, to win. One of the major lessons in this chapter is that those who have received God's grace can trust in God's promise of protection when we seek reconciliation with others. If you are in conflict with someone today, make an attempt to reconcile with them. Matthew 5, 23 and 18, 15 are, are God's instructions on how to go about doing it. But sometimes in spite of your attempts, you won't be able to reconcile. It's just the way it is. Um, you cannot control another person's will to want to reconcile with you. But if you do reconcile, you'll be imitating the true heart of God. And here are a few benefits of doing that. First, you know, you'll have a clear conscience. You'll be able to say, hey, you know what? I cleared my conscience with them. I went to them, tried to make things right. And now you don't have to worry about it anymore. Okay? So God will allow you to kind of move forward. You know, your experience in this situation will also allow you to grow spiritually. You know, it t it's, it's tough. Um, it's tough to go to someone and say, hey, you know what? Um, forgive me for wronging you in this particular way. You know, um, about six months ago, I had someone come up to me 
and say, hey, you know what? Um, I just want to see if we're okay. I want to make sure everything's right with us and really apologize. I'm like, for what? You know? But God was good. He didn't allow me to remember, but this had been on this individual's mind for a long time. You know, so it allows you to grow and it allows you to see that God does work in people, even when you don't see it. And then also our obedience, it will honor the Lord. I mean, that's why we're doing this, right? We're here to honor the Lord. We're here to, you know, make sure that he sees that our heart is open to him. So we're here to honor him. So in closing, let me close with a story about two brothers. They lived on adjoining farms, but they had a deep fight. They had often shared their resources, but that all stopped. And there was nothing left but bitterness and anger between these two brothers. And one morning, a brother we'll call John answered a knock at his door, and it was a carpenter. The carpenter asked if there was any work that he could do. So John said that there was something he could do. So he took the carpenter to where the two properties met, showed him how the other brother had taken a bulldozer and created a creek where the meadow used to be. John said, I know he did this to make me angry. I want you to help me get even by building a big fence so that I won't have to see him anymore or his property ever again. So the carpenter worked hard all day. And when he reported back to John, John noticed there was no fence. The carpenter had used his skill and built a bridge over the creek instead of a fence. John's brother saw the bridge and was quite moved that his brother would do such a thing. The two brothers met in the middle of the bridge, embraced, and they cried. They saw the carpenter packing his tools, and they asked him to stay a while and do more work. And the carpenter replied, I'm sorry, but I have other bridges to build. Guys, I got to tell you that, you know, the Lord wants nothing more than for all of us to be bridge builders in our families. You know, there's people that we've wronged. There's people that, you know, we need to reconcile with. There's people that want to reconcile with us. And I would just uh, encourage us all that uh, to take a look at the life of Jacob, stubborn, prideful, mistrusting, you know, the list can go on. And that's not who we want to be. Amen? So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're just so grateful to you, Lord, for just uh, walking us through the life of Jacob, Lord, and just the struggles that this, uh, this individual had, Lord. Thank you, Father, for showing us just how imperfect he was and just how much we can relate to this, Lord. Father, we just ask, Father, for just the situations and the circumstances in our lives and and the lives of these men, Lord, that you would intervene. And, Father, that we would just not just see the 400 men coming towards us, Lord, but we would look more towards you and see that you are the person you are the one that can actually solve these problems and these issues that we have in our lives, Lord. Father, we just pray for the marriages that are here. We pray for the single guys. Father, we just pray for the situation, the circumstances, financially, those that need jobs. Lord, we just ask you, Father, that you would just supernaturally intervene. Father, we just thank you so much for just how much you love us, Lord. Thank you for your word, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, guys.